Well, it's fitting today that today is Israeli Independence Day. If you weren't aware, today is Yom HaHatzma'ut, which means Independence Day in Hebrew, which is the day in 1948, on the 5th of ER, when uh, a gathering of the provisional Israeli government met in Tel Aviv, in the house of Mayor Dizengoff, which had become, he had bequeathed to the town as an art museum, and they gathered there. On a Friday afternoon. On a Friday afternoon, right. And uh, read the Declaration of Independence, signed it, said Shehechianu, which is the blessing for having reached this moment, and sang Hatikva 71 years ago. Isn't that amazing? And I bet there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was reprinted in the Times today, an advertisement. In the New York Times. The advertisement for what? It wasn't an advertisement, but it was the Helmsley Foundation reprinted in a full page ad. Oh, Israel's Declaration of Independence. Very interesting. So, at our last, yes, it is. It's worth reading, everybody. Yeah, it's worth reading. It's worth reading. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's an educational and compelling document that gives you a sense of, of what they were doing. Uh, yes. And Jews around the world celebrated. Uh, I know for a fact that in Buenos Aires. Uh, my mother was 10 years old. People were dancing in the streets. In Buenos Aires, in, in, dancing in, in the streets. Yeah, she remembers mm -hmm. the kids. Yeah. On the Upper West Side, too, because I remember. <laughs> you remember, Carol? Oh, God. There was so much singing and dancing, and it wasn't just one day. I, I, that's, that's probably my original fastening on to Judaism, because it was so joyous. Wow. Yeah, that, wow. Exactly. Bobby, do you remember? I, I remember the day, but in Columbus, Ohio, we didn't dance. Esther, do you remember? No. Where were you growing up? In the Bronx. Uh-huh. And Arnie, do you remember? So explicitly. I, I was sitting on my bed in my room, and the radio was in the You were in Brooklyn? In Brooklyn, Borough Park. Radio was in the kitchen, up on the, on the corner of the shelf, and and I hear this proclamation, and they said, "So, what are they going to call this country? What are they going to call the country? The country's going to be called Israel." So I went to my mother. I said, "It really happened." Oh, no. <laughs> oh my God! Said, yeah. 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 I, I was astonished. Yeah. How old were you? I'm 14. Bob, do you remember? I don't. Strangely enough, I don't. Where were you growing up? Also in Brooklyn. Right. Well, who knows what we were each tuned into. Anybody else old enough to uh, remember that day? <laughs> Jane? Uh, I was eight. You were eight? <clears throat> You were in Sunday school. Where were you growing up? Merrick, Long Island. Uh-huh. They said uh, we 
That's interesting. I'm just trying, I'm just, this is, this is only an aside, but my, because of my age, born in 55, my historical consciousness really begins the day I came home when JFK was assassinated. Right. And I was eight years old. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm thinking about how something would impact, yeah. impact a kid. Yeah, yeah. Tell me the year again. The year. 48. 48. I was born in 47. I was 70 years old. You were seven? Seven. 47? 47. It was just before my eighth birthday. I didn't hear the radio. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you might have. You just don't remember. <laughs> I, was, I was 10. You were 10? Oh, do you remember, Anne? I uh, Bill? I remember. I was in Hebrew school, and the teacher explained it to us. When you were in Hebrew school? 11 years old. 11 years old. How important it was for us. She had a big smile on her face. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that, that was an astonishing moment, which was the culmination of 50 years of organized uh, Zionism. We talked last time about the first Zionist Congress, and, uh, which was in 1897, and Herzl writing in his diary that evening, today we founded the Jewish state. <clears throat> Maybe not in five years or 10 years, certainly, but in 50 years. And one of the astonishing parts of this story and about whoever the heck Herzl was, <laughs> is that 50 years later, yeah. in 19, the end of 1947, uh, the United Nations voted on partition to create a Jewish state. And uh, the process, beginning in November of 1947, that led to the Declaration of Independence in May of 1948, um, uh, Let's see. I think I'll ask Carl if he can. Um, you want me to just go around the other way and ask him so you don't have to disturb your. Hold on. No, I think this will be just a couple minutes. He's 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 just doing the edges. That's okay. okay. Um, that Herzl was correct in his diary that evening to the year. It's just another mystery to contemplate about this process. Um, Oh, at your synagogue, you yeah, were learning synagogue. the songs and dances between November and May. The day was inevitably coming, and wow. we'll talk about this history, because part of the partition agreement was that the British had made clear that in May they were going to um, uh, dissolve the um, Palestine mandate and leave, and had thrown up their hands and said, you, said to the United, brand new United Nations, it's your baby now. And so the British were preparing to leave in all those months. The War of Independence was initially, after the partition plan was announced, an active civil war within the Palestinian mandate um, uh, between the Arab and Jewish 
or um, uh, uh, factions living under British rule in the Palestinian mandate. When the British pulled out, it became not a civil war, but an international war, right? Between this brand new mm, Jewish state and the surrounding Arab armies uh, who had waited to invade until the British pulled out. And so, but the war, the, the, the violence was, was ongoing. So, Herzl also said famously, Im tirtsu enzo agada. If you will it, it is not a dream. And uh, there he was in Basel in 1897 with essentially hatching a dream that came to pass on this day in 1948. So if you recall, Bob has brought in an artifact that we're going to take a look at. It's just amazing to sit here with it. If you recall, the Basel program, Basel program, that's where the first Zionist, World Zionist um, um, uh, convention happened. They created a program and one of the things they wanted to create was a Jewish bank, a Jewish national fund, which was at the time called the Jewish Colonial Trust. So there's that word colonial, everybody, to colonize. And uh, again, in any looking back on Jewish history and on the history of Zionism, uh, it's also a colonizing project. Right? And uh, so it was called, the, but at that time, this was what it was called, the Jewish Colonial Trust sold shares to try to raise, I think this says two million pounds, it was a two million pound uh, uh, bond drive, <laughs> essentially. They never raised close to that. One of the things to understand about the early years of the Zionist, World Zionist Organization, the early decades, I should say, right up to the founding of the state and beyond, but certainly up through the 1940s, was that they were broke all the time. Any retrojecting about today's incredibly powerful, uh, wealthy Israeli system, uh, which is a product really of the last 40 years, it's an astonishing story, the amount of wealth that has been generated in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel. <coughs> But to retroject that <clears throat> is truly uh, uh, totally wrong. They were broke. They couldn't raise two million pounds. Uh, and year after year, uh, conference after conference, they didn't meet every year, but maybe every, was it maybe uh, every two years there was another Zionist convention. Sometimes it, they w there would be a report from the secretariat and they would give a financial report, just like we're going to have our annual meeting soon. And over and over they said, we couldn't do this, and we couldn't do that, and we couldn't do this, we, could, we didn't have the money. But what Bob has is a share from the Jewish Colonial Trust um, purchased on the 23rd of July, 1900. Um, and uh, this is to certify that, what do you think, Shlomo Elian of somewhere in somewhere Russia, in Russia 
is the registered holder of one ordinary share, numbered 59585, inclusive in the Jewish Colonial Trust, Yudisha Colonial Bank Limited, subject to the memorandum and articles of association thereof, and that the sum of one pound has been paid up on each of the said shares. One pound. Uh, sh can I just pass it around? Uh, it's, it's, it's... Yeah, I guess so. You sure? <laughs> Okay, because it's, it's, it's framed and covered. Um, here's what it looks like, everybody. Wow. Well, remember, you know, these are what shares looked like in, uh, when you had your bank shares or anything, a share in a company. It came in a nice certificate, right? Or if you bought a bond. If you, that's, Bob, do you want to say anything about this? Well, no, no, you, you've done a great job. Thank you. Thank you. How much did you get with... Does it come from? Yeah, where did you get here from Russia? <laughs> I collect Jewish money from the time of the Maccabees and Bar Kokhba until today. And I go to coin shows and I walk around the tables and when I see something interesting, I buy it. And this was something interesting. And I bought it. Bob uh, has done some presentations here. Can, can I invite them over to your house sometime? To make friends with him. He'll probably show you his coin collection. <laughs> Any free samples? <laughs> no, I don't think so. My brother has a small collection of money, of all money. My brother has a small collection, he's not a collector, things that when he was younger. And he has a, a, a bill from a, a ghetto. Right, ghetto. some of the ghetto money that was produced by the Nazi regime. He doesn't know what to do with it really because I don't know. You have ghetto money? My brother. Your? My brother. Her brother. So talk to, talk to Bob about this because Bob actually does have some ghetto money. One of, I want to talk to you. One of Bob's presentations, <laughs> Tamara, Tamara, one of Bob's presentations is on Holocaust money. Oh, okay. So uh, you should okay. definitely talk to him. Wonderful. He knows a lot about this. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So having acknowledged the day that we're meeting on and that some of us uh, remember what our experience was that day, it's a, you know, again... We're not teaching a dispassionate subject here. And uh, it, it, uh, it goes deep for many of us. Um, uh, and let's continue. Hopefully, um, reasonably accurate descriptions of this history will help us in deciding where we stand and how we want to act in relation to it today. Okay. So... I think what I want to talk today about is in the wake of the First Zionist Congress, uh, a, I, I, I spoke last time about political versus cultural Zionism, I believe. Yes. Um, uh, so I want to turn now. So after the, in 1903, there are incredible massacres in Kishinev. Um, remember, in 1881, the pogroms in Russia sparked a huge outmigration of Jews in the Russian Pella settlement to Western Europe, Argentina, especially the United States, and a small stream <clears throat> to, uh, 
to Palestine of the early proto-Zionists. Um, the next giant negative push was in 1903 and prompted a movement called the Second Aliyah. The first Aliyah came after 1881. It involved uh, Jews, and these were small numbers, remember, who often got very sick from malaria and other endemic diseases in Palestine, and also were, it was, were impoverished there, had few sources of income, uh, and many of whom returned to Europe. Uh, but a, few, a small number, thousands, stayed. But they were not... They were not labor Zionists. They were not, they were not part of this radical reinvention of what it means to be Jewish. They became landowners in Palestine and continued to employ the tenant farmers and the laborers who were the local Arab population there. Uh, they generally, from what I've read about it, the, these people in the first Aliyah were neither better nor worse. Maybe they were a little better than the Arab landowners there. They basically were integrating into uh, the economic structure of the place and time. Uh, they did create Jewish uh, towns, um, farming settlements, I should say. Uh, but it was only after the creation of the Zionist movement by Herzl in 1897 and then the Kishinev pogroms, disastrous in revolutionary, pre-revolutionary Russia, uh, that sparked another out-migration from Europe. Another huge, huge numbers of Jews saying, we can't live here anymore. Not only are we uh, uh, systematically impoverished, but our lives, our, li our lives are in danger at all times. Uh, this second Aliyah, as it's known, uh, the most of the people who came in the second Aliyah, mostly from Russia and the Jewish Pale of Settlement, uh, became the, founding, the founders of Israel 45 years later, 40, 45 years later. The most famous of these that we will know is a guy named David Green. Right, who took a Hebraic name when he came to Israel, as was the custom, and became David Ben-Gurion. Right. Right. He came over in like 1905, I think. Yeah, pretty sure it was 1905. So who were these people who came over? Um, first of all, it's important and fascinating to realize that they were all very young. They left their parents and their families. The only re what motivates you to leave your parents and your families at age 20-something? Idealism, yeah. right? <laughs> they wanted to solve the Jewish problem. And I'm going to repeat again, the fact that it was called the Jewish problem and not the anti-Semitic problem is the problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. The Jews, you know, it, it, the Jews were not the problem. Anti-Semitism was the problem, but because the message of anti-Semitism is that the Jews are the problem, Jews themselves adopted that terminology. How are we going to, serve, how are we going to um, resolve our, this Jewish problem? Uh, meaning, meaning that... That being Jewish is the 
being Jewish is the problem, right? So that means that uh, uh, these early re radical revolutionaries were also rejecting the uh, Judaism of their parents because they saw that as part of the problem. <clears throat> the Jewishness of their parents, their Yiddish, as we've discussed, their, the fact that they were restricted to, um, uh, that they, the fact that they weren't, um, we talked about the, about Bar about the Maccabees and Hanukkah last time, didn't we, Some yeah. yeah, the fact that they weren't like self-sufficient, strong people who could defend themselves and the fact, that's why Hebrew culture was being created. We talked about all of this, to replace uh, uh, the culture of the exile and the diaspora. There were almost, yes? Do we know about the percentage of men and women that... Uh... It was heavily male. Mm -hmm. It was a shortage of women uh, in this new society. And everyone was, in the, everyone was young. So... Uh, um, and they were radicals. They were, what did they form, these young radicals? Communes. They formed kibbutzim. Right? These are communes, everybody. These were young radicals who left their families to go create a new paradise on earth. Right? It's not, and they were influenced by the uh, back to the earth ideology of the time. Talk about Tolstoy, right? Talk about, you know, the glorification of working with your hands in the land and of the being of the peasants and, you know, of the need in the Industrial Revolution and it's the, it's the early 20th century and in the alienation of the urban person to go back to the land. All of this was part of the background that was motivating them. There was a, uh, uh, a man named Aleph Dalad A.D. Gordon, who was one of the um, poets and prophets of this uh, transformation. And uh, he was uh, 47 years old when he moved to Palestine at around this time. He'd already been, had a life and been the manager of a big estate. And, under, and he, um, he decided, because of his, his passion, to leave his life and move to Palestine. And he, he wrote a lot about what he called the religion of labor. How what was going to rescue us, thank you so much, what was going to rescue this generation was, a re, was to once again work in the land, be in nature, live in harmony and his writing is beautiful his writing is really beautiful very romantic um and he was like the prophet of these young people and he apparently had you know he was 47 years old he had a big beard he and he was working in the fields and he was considered ancient by that by these young people and he was their um you know he was their prophet ad gordon yeah He's worth, it's worth reading some of the things he wrote. They're very beautiful and compelling. Here, I'll read you an excerpt. What's the name of the book? This is, a, this is one of my favorite books. It's called The Making of Modern Zionism, The Intellectual Origins of the Jewish State. I've read it and reread it and reread it 
and I just was reading it again. Uh, Shlomo Avineri, a, uh, uh, who's still alive, he's in his late 80s, and uh, is a, was a professor of um, uh, political science at Hebrew University, he wrote this book in 1981. Um, Gordon. Wait, doesn't he have a chapter on Gordon? Yeah. 151. Who wrote, who wrote the book? His name is Shlomo Avineri. I'll just have it right oh. here for you, Anne. Yeah. Did the poet have a Hebrew name? Pardon? Did he have a Hebrew name? No, he didn't change his name, interestingly. Uh, there, is o- there is only one way that can lead to our Renaissance. The way of manual labor. Of mobilizing all our national energy. We have as yet, do you know how to turn it off? Turn the sound off? There's a little button on the side. We have as yet no national assets because our people have not yet paid the price for them. A people can acquire a land only by its own effort, by realizing the potentialities of its body and soul, by unfolding and revealing its inner self. This is a two-sided transaction, but the people comes first. The people comes before the land. A parasitical people is not a living people. Our people can be brought to life only if each one of us recreates himself through labor and a life close to nature. This is how we can, in time, have good farmers, good laborers, good Jews, and good human beings. On the other hand, if in Palestine... We continue the life of the galut. Galut is the Hebrew word for exile. With its petty trading and all that goes with it, the continuing generations will pursue the same road even more vigorously. So part of the Jewish problem for these early idealists, these labor Zionists, socialist Zionists, was that by having been disconnected from the means of production all of these years in exile, Um, the Jews had become a degraded people, not in touch with the life force, right? So this was, was again, a a, a radical movement to not just, as I've said many times, create a Jewish nation, but to um, heal and recreate Jews, right? And they they were radically secular, they were anti-religious, religious was, you know, they were socialists, so religious, both being socialists and, uh, mod- the, 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 and uh, against the exilic mentality, religion was uh, something to uh, uh, abandon in favor of, it's a, it's a classic, you know, dialectic, you know, this, and, and, and in one other book I'm reading called uh, The Jewish Century, which I mentioned, um, which I won't go into in great detail, he does an incredibly compelling job in describing both Zionism, Freud, and Marx, all of whom came from, uh, all of whom were Jews of 19th century Europe, all as essentially patricidal um, uh, revolutionary movements. We are going, our fathers are useless. We need to 
abandon their ways and create a new, uh, a, a new person. Uh, Freud in particular, you know, uh, he makes, in this book, which I say is fascinating, he talks about Freud's Oedipal um, assumptions as uh, also what he himself was doing in abandoning the Judaism of his father and the, the uh, bourgeois, petty, uh, businessman life of all that. Amazing. Helen. That's a book called The Jewish Century. I will bring it in. No, it's Yuri Slezkin, S-L-E-Z-K-I-N-E. It won the National Jewish Book Award. He is a professor of Eastern European history at UC Berkeley and the chair of the department there. It's Yuri Slezkin, The Jewish Century. It's, it's dense, but incredibly rich. I'm learning a lot from it. Uh, that's the good part about having to teach a class. <laughs> Helen. Were, were these people also in the mix of causing, of, well, being blamed for or contributing to the Russian Revolution? There were different factions, uh, uh, and I can't speak about it intelligently. Like what I can say is, within the Jewish population in Russia, um, the uh, socialist Zionists who were saying let's get out of here and move to Israel were in, were in vigorous, active oppositional debate with the other Jewish socialists who wanted to create the revolution there in Russia. Their analyses, their analyses were at odds with each other. The, the Jewish Russian revolutionaries thought that they could create a worker's paradise, a, a truly messianic end of history there in Russia. The labor Zionists, because of their analysis of the Jewish problem, felt that that was impossible and that they had to create their own revolutionary nation state. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe they thought they could never overthrow the Russian state. Well, as we've discussed, it wasn't about overthrowing the Russian state. It was about their analysis that the Jews would never, ever, even after the revolution, be truly welcome. Even if there was a revolution. Even if there was a revolution. That was the analysis of Zionism. That's, that's, what, Herzl figured, that's what Herzl came to in Western Europe, and that's what these Eastern European Jews were also concluding, which brought them together into this Zionist movement. That their analysis was, which again, only in hindsight do we know was correct, was that there was no future for Jews in Europe. They turned out to be tragically correct. On the other hand, thank God, they had their analysis, or there would have been no opportunity for a Jewish homeland. Uh, Tamara, and then Judith, and then Bobby. Uh, that one you just read from Gordon, yeah. it calls, it, calls them parasitic, uh, his own Right, he internalized the language. But, but what I was thinking is, it's true they were disconnected from the, uh, you said, from the means of production, but it was a reason, and I think he was right in a way, because of the way they were being um, segregated from certain occupations. That's right. Jews had become uh, intellectuals or laborers with their hands. Little or with their minds. With their minds, mm -hmm. things they couldn't do because they were forbidden. It became eventually over the generations probably these people who are disconnected from the everyday laborer. Yes, well, you think about, yes, it's true. They, there were, 
there was a whole other population in Ukraine, Russia, called the peasants. Right. Right? The peasants were the laborers. They were, they didn't have a good deal either. But the Jews in that society, that was not the the place in that society that the Jews filled. And in the glorification of working with your hands and back to the land, um, part, part of that was the romantic idea that we needed to recreate ourselves as peasants. But also, don't you think it was the, the idea of that we need to reconnect with the regular people? We, we, we are in this like tower, uh, uh, ivory tower of, of intellectual activity, the Jews, the learned people, the people who have fought from the book, of the book, the people who had the alphabet, the first people who had, you know, the right. books. That's, par- mm-hmm. That's partly true. That's partly true. But you have to remember that in addition to the Jewish intellectuals and learned people and uh, middlemen and uh, merchants and moneylenders, there was Tevye the milkman. And there was, in other words, the Jewish population was actually not. But they were educated in their own way. My grandfather came from a very, very poor household where the kids had to work. Mm-hmm. But you know what he did? He drew letters. He was a good, would be a graphic designer today, right? So they were still learning, and they were poor, had nothing to eat, but they went to um, to the yeshiva or whatever. Right. You know, right. They were right. educated compared to the other peasants. Oh, right, but that, uh, it was complete. Right, it was a completely different cultural. Um, uh, lane than the peasantry, the illiterate peasantry. That's right. And the Jews filled this uh, uh, place in the society, but, had, but were neither here nor there, right? They were floating in the air like a Chagall picture, right? This was a desire, and they were partly floating in the air because they weren't allowed to, right? So the Jewish problem was, part, was this structural problem of European society, plus all this endemic hatred of the Jews, that they wanted to resolve by getting their feet on the ground and their hands in the dirt in their own land and reclaim what to them appeared to be a more full human humanity that had been denied them because of their status in exile. Right. Judith? I was thinking about how the founders would be thinking about modern Israel now. We're going to get there. No, I know. I know. Oh, what, how they would. Oh, yes. What so, they would feel. Think about, well, Ben-Gurion lived all the way until 1973. Uh, That was still when the gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid in Israel was like, you know, times five or times ten. You know, now it's times a thousand like in most everybody else. Yes, uh, these founders would be horrified by the demise of the egalitarian worker-based society that they were trying to create. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But then if you look at the larger, the larger uh, arc of history, the socialist dream in Israel died as the socialist dream all over the world died. Right? And as capitalism became ascendant, as you know, global capitalism sort of like just sort of steamrolled over that the last few decades. So yeah, they would be horrified as would, uh, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a process unique uh, to Israel. What's taken, what's transpired in the last decades. Ironically, the Jewish cultural centuries of Jewish cultural practice in being good at ideas, concepts, manipulating capital, 
um, has in fact served Israel uh, to become uh, a, a, a tiny little juggernaut in today's econ- global economy, which I'm not saying is a good or a bad thing, but it's interesting how, you know, there was an effort to make us back into peasants, and uh, in fact, the the nature of the the sort of the sort of fundamental nature uh, qualities of Jewish uh, culture and society, re- when as they reasserted themselves, uh, put, made us incredibly ready to thrive in uh, this uh, in this contemporary economy. Anyway, Bobby, you had your hand up. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, just following up as others have on what uh, uh, Gordon said about being divorced from the means of production. Even yeah. though everybody didn't stay in agriculture, the move to uh, the tremendous accomplishments in science and medicine and industrial production, I think, also came from that because they were now able to do those things. It was clear. It was clear to these. Well, to Ben Gurion in particular, as one of the you know exemplars of, of and the leader of the of the building of this uh, state to be state in waiting, was that if the Jews did not control their own means of production, they could never flourish. Truly flourish. And that was one of the premises of creating a Jewish state, whether it would be a social, socialist state or otherwise. If we didn't control the means of production and, ma- and master every level of that, we could never recreate a healthy and successful Jewish society. Joan? Um, you know, pondering on the, on the Gordon quote that you gave us, um, the word terrain came to me, which is in production of, of like grapes or whatever, you have to be in your own soil, your own unique soil. And as exiles, as we were traveling to so many places, it was never our terrain. And we could never really root there. And we could never really become full human beings until we came onto our own terrain. That is precisely what the Zionists taught. Precisely. That's what I felt from mm-hmm. Precisely. Gail, and then Arnie, and then Jane. What does a tenant farmer mean? Someone who rents land and yes, works it? Is a farmer working the land? Yes, the, the, these early Zionists had left the shtetl. They had moved to the cities. They, these early Zionists, like Ben-Gurion, they grew up very Jewish. They grew up going to yeshiva and cheder and speaking Yiddish in and left and went to the cities where they were then inculcated into this... Uh, it, into this revolutionary idea. So yes, many, so many Jews were simply impoverished uh, uh, farmers, um, dairymen, you know, just scraping by. Absolutely. Um, they, so, um, uh, Arnie? This uh, cultural divorce of the Jews from the land 
is a classic example of the fire calling the kettle black. <clears throat> if you look back in Jewish history... The pot the calling Jews? the kettle black. Yes, yes. So who, 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 who were the Jews? Well, what did they do? They were pastoral and agricultural people. I mean, just look, look at the... Look at the Look at our Bible. I mean, everything is revolves around the pastoral life and the agricultural life and coming to Jerusalem with the first fruits and all this business. But at, in the Galut, they weren't allowed to own land. By and large. They, they were pushed off. They were not allowed. By and large, they were not allowed to own land. And even worse than that, they could not employ Christian help. So... You can't employ Christians, and you yeah. can't own land. What can you do? You, you know, so you, they 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 form the, the uh, social the uh, social strata that, that they form. And the other <coughs> important thing is that <coughs> early Christianity, or you know, up, up, up until Napoleonic times, uh, the church forbade uh, Christians uh, from engaged in. Money lending and usury. So, who was who filled the gap? Uh, the Jews were literally pushed into this, beginning on a very small scale with pawnbroking, uh, being pawnbrokers, and the church actually sought, they pushed Jews into this occupation uh, from from pawnbroking. They got it, you know, uh, they developed and they became more affluent and. Uh, other aspects of finance, but uh, the Jew was not, you know, inherently uh, part of the social class for which they were criticized. That's they right. They were not inherently, they were not by almost, by great numbers, part of the social class for which the Jewish problem criticized right. them. They, they were created, they were pushed into this, you know, uh, by the social forces of the people who were ruling. Uh, you know, the, the, the Nazis would, would, would call the Jews the filthy Jews. Well, of course, they were because they were deprived of every sanitary facility and treated like animals. So, uh, 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 I guess I want to, you know, I want to move forward in this conversation. So all of us are sophisticated enough to understand that the, how virulent anti-Semitism was in Europe and especially at the turn of the 19th century in Eastern Europe. The Jews were despised, degraded, their lives were in danger, and uh, they, were, they were searching desperately for a solution that would provide them safety and dignity. Right? Let's just leave it at that for now. Jane? Yes, so all these concentric circles, you know, it's very hard now for me to go back to the original feeling that I had that this was a homeland for, for us because so much has happened. I know. But I have some really interesting old National Geographic magazines. And this one is from October 1946. 1946. I have older ones. But here, uh, talking about the Jews going back to the land and becoming laborers again, I'll pass this around. It's sort of coming apart, so be careful with it. Oh, okay. Ships, trains, and cargo cram Haifa, Palestine's only deep water port. So it says here, here Arabs unload Dead Sea chemicals from Palestine railway cars. Jews, who for centuries turned away from the sea, maintain a school for sailors in Haifa. 
they have also organized the Jewish merchant fleet. Right. And then there's another one, Carmelite, a source of potassium, comes Sunday out of Dead Sea grind. Here, 1,286 feet below Mediterranean level, acclimatizing men from Europe presented a serious problem. It was solved without a single epidemic. A thousand Jews now work beside, beside a thousand Arabs. Mm. And there's other, <laughs> you know, interesting uh, Great. photos and pictures. I'll pass this around. Be gentle with this magazine from 1946. Wow. Remember the date. It's months after the Second World War has ended and the Holocaust right. is just wow. starting, to, the extent of the Holocaust is just starting to come to light. Wow. Britain is in control of the Palestine. Palestine. They are very, very reluctant to let in uh, Jewish refugees right. from Europe um, because um, of the um, now decades-old conflict that they've been trying to navigate between the Zionists and the Arabs who live in Man Palestine, <clears throat> the British Mandate Palestine. But I don't want to jump ahead to 1946 anymore. Okay. Uh, I thank you for bringing that. Uh, David, you wanted to say something. Well, I was just thinking that you had mentioned that in Eastern Europe, the city of Odessa. Yes. And I was wondering whether these young people... Many of them, most of them, migrated to, to Odessa, which was a, essentially... A city. A rem, a, not just a city, but a city that was only 100 years old, had where it was a free city. Yeah. It was a city where these people could move to and pursue these enlightened modern lives that they had escaped the ghetto from. These were not the Jews that were working, you know, outside. No, these were not. These were Jews who had left the shtetl and come to the city where they could pursue these revolutionary ideas. That's right. That's right, Bob. Another irony of these Jews leaving Europe to get a better life and to escape anti-Semitism, so they went to Palestine, and then it became Israel where they would be no longer strangers in a strange land, and there would no longer be any anti-Semitism because they were in their own country with their own people. And we know today that, of course, there's no anti-Semitism. So here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. These were revolutionary movements. A revolutionary movement, which could be also called a messianic movement, imagines and sees itself going towards an end of history as we know it. That's what messianic and revolutionary movements are trying to create. Whether it's a worker's paradise or it's a Jewish homeland, uh, where we've recreated an independent Jewish society, there is a larger vision of the wolf and the lamb lying down of the, you know, at when all these other problems will then be solved. All revolutionary movements, anyone who survives one, then has to come to their reckoning that it didn't end history. Right? It's, it's, it's as true about Zionism as it is about every other revolutionary movement. It transformed Jewish history, but it didn't end history as we know it, right? That doesn't mean the Zionist movement was a failure by any means. But the messianic expectations of young radicals 
those never come to pass. They never do. And on the other hand, this is where, this is the interesting thought, which is that, but if they didn't, weren't motivated by a vision of a city on the hill, would any of it ever have gotten accomplished? And that's kind of the dialectic of human enterprise, right? We have, I have a dream that one day, you know, black children and brown children will all be holding hands together. It's like, no, that didn't happen. On the other hand, a lot positive did. And then the pendulum of history swung back and tried to knock those dominoes down. And then we swing it back again. Yeah. But I want to put, again, what you're saying about Zionism into the larger context of revolutionary movements and what they accomplish and what they can never accomplish. Uh, did I see another hand? Esther? I just wanted to um, add to the discussion about um, Jews and the land. Uh, my family is Sephardic, as many of you know. And my, 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 my grandparents lived in uh, Skopje, uh, which, is, which was then Yugoslavia, now is Macedonia. They, my grandfather owned a, a, a group of homes. Um, how it was described to me was like, um, they were different homes, but they shared land in the middle. And there were chickens, and there were cows, and there was growth, and there was farming. I mean, there was all of that. And um, my, my grandparents never spoke of being um, outside of the society that they were in, uh, that they were recognized as full citizens in that country. That was when that part of the world was the Ottoman Empire, and that the Pasha had welcomed the Jews who were fleeing from the Inquisition into their country, mm -hmm. which was huge mm -hmm. at that time. So their experience right, but, was very different. But when did they leave? They, <laughs> they left when uh, the... Um, what, what year was it, Esther? 1914. 1914. They left when the country was then part of the Aust Aust Austrian-Hungary Empire, and mm -hmm. the persecution began, and that's when they left. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And furthermore, what was going on during that time, so the Ottoman Empire was collapsing in World War I. Right. Austro-Hungary took over as Ottoman lands. Right. They feel that's when the persecution began. Yeah. But there were also nascent nationalisms in Macedonia, in Serbia, in Croatia. And one of the problems of modern nationalism is that it's an exclusive identity. And so the Jews who had lived under an Ottoman Empire, you know, basically in, in relative harmony with their neighbors for centuries, were also not just constrained by Austro-Hungarian anti-Semitism, but by emerging local nationalisms. Which were, the half Armenians were killed. The Armenians is a similar story to the Jews. Yeah. Uh, the Ar in this book, The Jewish Century, that I mentioned before, his, he lays out what is not a new thesis, which is that the Jewish position in Christian Europe was not different in essence from the, Jewish, from the position of Armenians in the world of the uh, uh, Turks, or of the um, ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, 
or of certain groups in Africa, that in every culture, uh, that he cites all of these different societies where there was a dominant society that was the farmers and the, 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 the sort of the, the, the stable part of the society, and, that, and the gypsies, of course. Um, and that in each of these societies, there was also a, a group that fulfilled many tasks of healers, musicians, moneylenders, uh, um, uh, doctors. doctors who worked in the interstices of these societies, but were not of them, and were usually despised, and also necessary. Mm-hmm. And it's just a fascinating thing to understand that, that the Jews of Europe, there have been Jews of other cultures too. Yeah. Um, so the problem that happens in my reading with the emerging nationalisms of Europe yeah. is that they are fundamentally intolerant right. of diversity. Yeah. Because to become a nation state, you have to become a real Croat a real Macedonian, or whatever that is, because it's invented everybody. And so that, again, it's all those emerging nationalisms that lead the Zionists to say, we need a nationalism. Because we are not welcome in any of these emerging nation-states. It's happening now. In Europe, it's still happening. Nationalism is still pretty much the organizing principle of, um, uh, most, of most, most of our world. Uh, there are cosmopolitan um, uh, pockets that defy, you know, the, the tenets of nationalism. But yes, that's why, unless we understand nationalism, we don't understand Zionism and why it emerged. So, uh, uh, briefly, Paula. Again, that's another class. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so back to the labor Zionists. They are, whatever the actual on-the-ground situation for most of the Jews of Eastern Europe, the labor Zionists are responding to the anti-Semitic um, uh, designation of the Jews as as being less than human. And so the Jewish problem then, you turn it on yourself. What makes us less than human? Well, we're not a free people in our own land. That will make us fully human. Right? So, again, in the dialectic of an oppressed people defining themselves, you define yourself in opposition to how you've been defined by the oppressor. Right? And that's different than what your lives are actually like. And, and so, uh, uh, so in a desire to escape anti-Semitism and resolve the Jewish problem, the labor Zionists want to create a national socialist nation of Jews, both for our own in inner redemption, which is going to transform us from being these Parasites, which is a classic word of anti-Semitism, right? Right. 
transform us from being these parasites into being full human beings, muscular, flesh and blood, and is going to remove us as a people from uh, the, the source of our oppression, resolve the Jewish problem in that way, and is going to establish us as a nation state among nation states, which will also, in this vision, resolve the Jewish problem. We'll just be another nation on our homeland. To which there won't be any anti-Semitism in this new nation. You don't have to be sarcastic. I mean, (laughs) I just described how these people were desperately trying to resolve the Jewish problem. Um, If they didn't think it was going to work, they wouldn't have left their families. That's what I was saying before. It's like, no, history doesn't work that way. Um, So, uh, I want to share a poem with you. This will be a nice way to... um, A poem is a really great way... Here, if you would take one and pass along that way. A poem is a really great way to get this mindset. Abraham Schlonsky. Listen, he's a typical young labor Zionist. Avram Schlonsky was born to a Hasidic family in Ukraine. His father was a Hasid. His mother, Tsipora, was a Russian revolutionary. See, that's why Fiddler is like, uh, Fiddler on a Roof is, 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 is amazing. He was born in 1900. Uh, when she was pregnant with her sixth child, she hid illegal posters on her body. Uh, okay, blah, blah, blah. In 1913, when Schlonsky was 13, he was sent to Ottoman Palestine to study at the prestigious Herzliya Hebrew High School in Tel Aviv. But when the First World War broke out, he returned to Ukraine. That's what happened to Nomi Halpern. Uh, our Nomi was born in 1914 in Jerusalem, and as the World War I broke out, their, his, her family had to leave. Um, in fact, this second Aliyah was interrupted. Everything was interrupted by the First World War. As, um, uh, as uh, all these Zionist efforts basically ground to a halt during the war because it was wartime. And uh, certainly the Turks thought these European Jews living in their in Palestine were not, were not welcome, right? Okay, so in 1921, oh, let me talk about the Herzliya uh, Gymnasium in Tel Aviv. Did we talk about Tel Aviv last time? A little bit? 1909, the first Hebrew-speaking city founded in thousands of years 
literally on sand dunes. That's not just a, a, the romantic myth. You can see the photographs. And they wanted to build a really nice cultured European city on the beach there, um, but where Hebrew would be spoken. And they named their gymnasium Her the Herzliya, after Theodore Herzl. Um, and so uh, uh, in 1921, Shlansky's family moved to Palestine, the whole family. Uh, Avram was a manual laborer, paving roads and working in construction, along with other members of the third Aliyah. That's the, that's the wave that started coming after the First World War ended. Um, and he joined the Labor Party and helped establish kibbutz in Harod in the Jezreel Valley. Um, he died in 1973. He was a very uh, famous um, Israeli poet. So here's a poem he wrote in 1928. And the reason I want to look it over with you is it gives you a really good window into this revolution of consciousness that these young Zionists were trying to undertake. The poem is filled with biblical allusions, uh, but completely uh, transformed by the poet. So, dress me, good mother, in a glorious robe of many colors, ketonet pasim, a coat of many colors, and at dawn lead me to my toil. Amal is the Hebrew word for toil, but avodah is also labor, but avodah is also worship. Okay, so avodah is a word for worship in Hebrew and a word for labor. Um, so at dawn, what's the word he uses for dawn? Shacharit. Shacharit is the name of the morning prayers. Uh, so he's getting dressed by his ima kshera, good mother. Kasher means kosher, proper. So the Hebrew is unbelievably rich. And Shlonsky, along with the other poets, are inventing modern Hebrew poetry at this point. And their source is the Bible. Um, and then, so everything in this poem is drawn from the morning religious practice of Jewish men. Otfa artsi or katalit. My land is wrapped in light as in a prayer shawl. Okay, so the blessing we say over putting on the talit is that we wrap ourselves in light as in a prayer shawl. So this is taken from the Psalms. The houses stand forth like frontlets, totafot, frontlets to fill in. So the the land is wrapped in light as a prayer shawl. The houses and the Hebrew word for um, the, the tefillin boxes are totafot or also batim, houses. In other words, the Hebrew word for the tefillin boxes are bayit, but they house scrolls. But he's doing something completely different. He's building real houses. And kirtzuot tefillin golshim krishim, salalu kapayim. And the roads stream down like the str leather straps of the tefillin, the flap. So get that image. Here's a guy, his father was a chassid, but he's in Israel. 
And his prayer is to go out at dawn and the houses are the tefillin. And the roads are the leather straps of the tefillin. Built by hand. Paved by hand. Here the lovely city says it's the morning prayer to its creator. And among its creators, your son Abraham, a road-building bard of Israel. Not Abraham in the Bible. Who's the creator? Him. Abraham Shlonsky. He's the creator. And the city is saying its prayer to him who's building it. This is the religion of labor. This is, this is just an amazing poem to me. You can't write this poem unless you grew up with the religion and have rejected it and are now saying this is the new religion. Um, and in the evening twilight, Father will return from his travails and like a prayer will whisper joyfully, Oh, my dear son Abraham, skin, sinews, and bones, hallelujah. The body, this muscular, road-building creator, this is the new religion of labor, building the Holy Land. And then he repeats the first line. Dress me, good mother, in a glorious robe of many colors, and at Shacharit, lead me out to my labor. This is a guy who's not wearing a kippah anymore. He's not wearing tefillin anymore. He's not wearing a talus anymore. The land is his talus. The houses are his tefillin. The roads are his leather straps. I love this poem. Um... Because uh, I think poetry, more than uh, other modes, can give you a window into the consciousness of... Yes? It feels like... It's so beautiful. I'm moved. I, I, it feels like they had so much religion, but they didn't have the rest. It, it's sad. Pardon me? It's sad, it's sad because it almost feels like they had religion, but they didn't... Before the state. But they didn't have all the rest that they needed. Right. They only had religion, and they had to heavily um, use it as a support, <coughs> say, as, as their life. Their life was the religion, mm-hmm. and the rest was unreachable. Uh huh. And uh-huh. now he has a real city, and he's building a real city. Can you imagine how it felt? Yeah. That's yeah. 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 Um, yes, uh, uh, Bob. So Mm-hmm. Uh, the robe of many colors in the Bible was given by Jacob to his favorite son, Joseph. Ben Yakirli. Mm-hmm. So he, Abraham, feels himself being a favorite son. That's right. He's 28 years old and he is, on, he is he's the man. <laughs> right. Skin, sinews, and bones. He's the new Jew. The Paitan Solel, the poet and road builder. Right? This is a new Jew, everybody. I'm just trying to communicate that yeah. to you. Yes, did I see another hand? I Carol? Mean, I, oh. I, just, I don't 
know exactly how what this means, but I don't want to let it go. And because he's not, it's not his. Uh, he's not asking. He's not the son of a favorite father here. The son of a mother. That's right. And there's something new about that. There's something different about that. And pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Esther? I, I was just thinking that um, in relation to what you said, that th that the um, probably the, the the Hasidic Jews who who couldn't do anything tangible in the world sought their own religious ecstasy so that they could do something with God. And that was what they did. <coughs> And so, well, they, but not everybody was a Hasidic Jew. <laughs> no, no, but but, but they were very observant Jews all over but that area. I don't know that this, the first anyway. Zionists came from homes that were particularly Hasidic. Well, um, it was all mixed up. Yes. Right. I mean, as you read, his father was a Chabad Hasid and his mother was a revolutionary. I mean, yeah. again, this is where Fiddler actually is helpful to keep in mind. This is the early 1900s. This is when it's all, they are running in Fiddler on the Roof. They are leaving because of Kishinev. Uh, there are young revolutionaries. There are Hasids. There are they're all talking to each other. They are revealing, rebelling against. That's exactly it. What you're saying. They're actually thinking we need more than. Religion. We need more than just our, our prayer life right. and our uh, study life. The young people are saying right. to parents, right? I mean, right, and they are infected by revolutionary fervor. Right. right? This, is at the, this is the early 1900s in Russia, everybody. This is the Russian Revolution. Uh, yes. He's transmogrified the, the scriptural and ritual things into practical and that's right. It, it, it's, it, it's the new creed. The new creed uh, that, that, that this is holy work. Yes, yes. This is the work of redemption. We're doing it with our own hands, and I am doing it. It's like the Green New Deal. Huh. <laughs> no, I'm thinking, it's like now this movement of young people saying, we need this, we need to save the world. Environment right, but and also just remember, he's both reclaiming his full sinews, bones, and muscles, and he's he's building the skeleton and infrastructure and muscles of the Jewish people at the same time. It's a radical transformation, so Carol. Still in search of redemption. Always. The fact that that, that he yeah. uses the language yeah. is so moving to me because it's not. It's rejected in one way, but it's completely integrated in another way. That's the genius of Zionism, is that it took our, you know, a national identity has to have a sacred literature, a sacred language, heroes, history, and the Zionists said, here's our history. Ben-Gurion is famous for carrying a Bible with him at all times. And he was uh, so anti-religious, Ben-Gurion. But he had a Bible with him at all times, and he knew it backwards and forwards. And so he could go to a place in Israel and identify what it was in the Bible. 
And that's why, you know, the, these, these, the, the early leaders of the Jewish state, the Yigal Yadins and the Ben-Gurions, they, they were archaeologists as well. They were, they were autodidacts. They were self-taught scholars. They, were, they felt themselves to be literally unearthing their history back in their ancestral homeland from under the uh, uh, accumulation of centuries and centuries of degradation. Right? They, and it was, is this true? Is it, it's partly true, but I'm trying to get across to you the, idea, the, the intensely uh, ideological nature of it which is the only way you're going to build a new society, right? And so, so being in their ancestral homeland with their Bible in their hand, as people who were anti-religion, they were doing what Shlonsky was doing. They were taking all of their literary and historical heritage and linguistic heritage and refashioning it into a modern, muscular, national identity. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Uh, it's, a, it's a totally fascinating process. And so to study modern Israeli poetry is an absolute joy because they take entirely with incredible seriousness this 3,000-year literary heritage that's theirs to mine and then to refashion, just like Shlonsky does here. Um, yes, Jane? This poetry is so beautiful and it makes me want to uh, learn, really learn Hebrew because of this poetry and um, so thank you that impulse is uh, that I share that impulse it's like once you start let's say you fall in love with France yeah. Yeah. well you're going to have to learn French yeah. <laughs> right because you won't really be able to plumb the culture in all of its nuance and all of its depth unless you do and the same is true once you start plumbing, yeah. uh, once you start getting interested in, uh, deeply interested in Judaism, Jewish culture, modern Zionism, you just want to know more. And the only way to know more is through the national language because it carries so many layers of association in it. Um, reading anything in translation is a strange experience, right? Uh, oh, if I had a million years and all the time to be able to learn everything that way, you know. Uh, Helen? I, I think maybe um, people like this not only saw what was going on for the Jews, or they, you know, they, it affected them, I think they saw what was going on for all people, in, in, uh, especially in Russia. And I remember reading uh, under the system that, you know, the aristocracy, the Russian aristocracy, the feudal system, which everyone was living under, that the, a Russian uh, uh, landowner would ride with his, through his lands with his, on his horses and with his group, and he would pull out his sword and lop off the head of the nearest peasant to see if it was sharp enough. In other words, people had, that's right. how people were seen. Right. It was not just the Jews, this was the Russian peasants that... that exactly, about. which was why there were so many young Jewish revolutionaries who believed in Russia and believed in the possibility of overthrowing the regime for, who would never embrace Zionism because it would be abandoning their motherland, 
Russia, right? There were the, so many more Jews were involved in that than who came to the conclusion that the early Zionists did that that, wasn't, that that was impossible and that they had to do it, do this also. Remember how counterintuitive this all is. The Zionists, Macedonian nationalism, Serbian nationalism, uh, um, Ukrainian nationalism, these are all growing out of the soil of that place. Right? These are the people there. It's the language they speak. It's their land. Zionism was so counterintuitive because they were going, they were, they were going to recreate themselves as a nation on their land. Uh, and recreate a spoken daily language that hadn't been a spoken daily language for the Jewish people in 2,500 years. So the Zionists were really outliers. Right? Only with the hindsight of history do we see a state of Israel where 8 million people speak Hebrew and where there's an army and where, you know, only with the hindsight of history. None of that was self-evident at that point because it seemed like such either a Herculean task or a totally... Um, total pipe dream. But they pursued it. Uh, so yes, but many, many Jews did not. Jane? I just want to say at the same time, I want to learn Arabic. I want to oh, learn I feel the same way. I hope I was expressing that. Yes, and I want to learn Arabic. Yes, I know just how you feel. I know, I know. Um, Bob? <laughs> I was lucky enough to hear Ben-Gurion's uh, knowledge of the Bible firsthand. In 1959, I went with a group of religious Zionists to Israel. We spent two months What year? There, 1959. Israel was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And we spent two months there, part of the time on Kibbutzim. And when we came home, we took a boat from Haifa to Marseille. And it just so happened that Ben-Gurion wanted to get away from it all, and he jumped on the boat with us. And he addressed us when he heard who we were. And he said to us, people, what was God's first commandment to the first Jew? And that was, Lech Lecha Me'artzacha, Leave your land, your homeland, and go... Your father's house. Your, fa your father's house, and go to the place where I will show you. And he looked at us and said, You're a religious Zionist. No. 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 Yes. Um, so let's, let's talk about Ben-Gurion a little bit. So there he was, a young man, and he got involved in founding a kibbutz and got involved in the labor party because now nascent political parties were forming in Palestine in what was called the Yishuv. Yishuv means... Uh, the returning point. They, yeah, the Jewish society that was being built there at the time, all the Jewish settlements. Um, and he slowly uh, moved up the ranks uh, at, oh, in the course of the next decades to find himself the leader of the Labour Party within a couple of decades, which then became the, the, the founding party of Israel. So he became Israel's founding father. 
Here's something he wrote uh, in 1933, but it relates to the theme of what labor Zionism was about. Let me read this paragraph. Um, two paragraphs. The very realization of Zionism is nothing else than carrying out this deep historical transformation occurring in the life of the Hebrew people. This transformation does not limit itself to its geographical aspect, to the movement of Jewish masses from the countries of the diaspora to the renaissance homeland, but in a socio-economic transformation as well. It means taking masses of uprooted, impoverished, sterile Jewish masses, living parasitically, there's that word again, off the body of an alien economic body and dependent on others, and introducing them to productive and creative life, implanting them on the land, integrating them into primary production and agriculture, in industry and handicraft, and making them economically independent and self-sufficient. I'm going to keep going. Zionism in its essence is a revolutionary movement. One could hardly find a revolution that goes deeper than what Zionism wants to do to the life of the Hebrew people. This is not merely a revolution of the political and economic structure, but a revolution of the very foundations of the personal lives of the members of the people. The very essence of Zionist thinking about the life of the Jewish people and on Hebrew history is basically revolutionary. It is a revolt against a tradition of many centuries helplessly longing for redemption. Instead of these sterile and bloodless longings, we substitute a will for realization, an attempt at reconstruction and creativity on the soil of the homeland. Instead of a people dependent on others, instead of a minority living at the mercy of a majority, we call for a self-sufficient people, master of its own fate. Instead of a corrupt existence of middlemen hung up in midair, we call for an independent existence of a working people at home on the soil and in a creative economy. Pretty clear, right? The, um, so where my thoughts go now in explaining all that is that one of the, one of the major differences between that first Aliyah in the 1880s and 1890s and the second Aliyah was this idea. And so that meant that the Jewish settlers would not employ Arab laborers. Not because they were discriminating against them, but why? It was a, they were transforming themselves. They would just be replicating the old system of Jews as, as, as middlemen and intermediaries. And so um, uh, that, that certainly was not understood at all by the Arab laborers who wouldn't get hired by them. Right? Furthermore, these Jews from Russia and Poland were like the pilgrims on the Mayflower, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they had no idea. That's why youth clubs and agricultural schools started to open in Europe. Jewish clubs and agricultural collectives so that they would be prepared to move to Israel. But they didn't know what they were doing. Um, and again, I'm going to mention, this was a small group of people uh, numbered, numbered in the thousands, maybe a couple tens of thousands. Who, start, who, were a, who were a bunch of radical idealists. Remember that the 
early kibbutzim were true communes. The property belonged to the collective. Even, you'll recall, the children belonged to the collective. Um, the, these were all people in their 20s. There was no older generation. It was, it, it, um, they spent their days working and their evenings arguing about the minutia of communist and socialist uh, uh, orthodoxies, right? And um, uh, somehow, <laughs> somehow, and they, and they started having babies, right? But it's, it's hard to remember that this was like, this was a, that's what it was like. Um, the Jews who didn't want to do that moved to Tel Aviv or to other, other uh, towns and cities emerging where they could lead a more normal life as they understood it. But the kibbutz movement, the labor movement, was driving this new economy and this new society. Yes, Bobby. As there were few women, did uh, some of them uh, take up or intermarry with, uh, with Arab women? No, not that I'm aware of. However, one of the things, think about these early communes, there was, the, the, it was their early idea that marriage should be abolished. Right. Right? These were young radicals. It's like, get rid of it all. So in the early years of the kibbutzim, there was a lot of free love going on. Um, but there wasn't intermarriage with the Arab population because precisely of their ideology. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, after the war, a lot of the survivors, young people, the young people who survived the, the Holocaust, a lot of them became uh, settlers in Israel, uh, became founders of Kibbutzim. Well, there's a whole other parentless generation right. that, that came to Israel after the Second I, World War. I have family who came to Israel this way. If you're familiar with uh, Hadassah and Youth Aliyah, That's one of Henrietta Solz, who created, who founded Hadassah, the Jewish women's organization, one of their great initiatives was creating youth villages in Israel for all the orphans that were starting to come in in the 1930s and then with accelerating in the 1940s. Remember, there, any plan anyone had for how things were supposed to go was completely overtaken by the juggernaut of, of history. It's like, again, with... The, we might like, you know, people who like really to schematically lay out histories might try to see a straight line of the development of the Jewish state to this day. But it was a tiny enterprise buffeted by forces so much larger than it could control, whether it was the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the arrival of the British, the rise of the Nazis. None, nothing was a foregone conclusion. Uh, the idea that Israel would be founded, despite what Herzl said, was uh, still um, uh, a radically uncertain idea. There was a, and they persisted. But when you read about the contemporaneous history, and you read the minute, you read excerpts from the minutes of the World Zionist Congress every few years, they were. It was a constant struggle, constant struggle. What was the name of the um, of the group of uh, youngsters in in America and in Argentina who were who were Zionists? Hatzair. Shomer Hatzair. Yeah. Okay. So the best way to build a movement was with youth movements, yeah. and so the communist in most it, the communist Zionists had a youth movement called Hashomer Hatzair, the Young Hatzair. Guardsmen. 
Uh, the religious orthodox starting in the 1920s had a movement called Bnei Akiva. Uh, the uh, revisionist Zionists, who we're going to talk about at length, had a movement called Beitar. And the labor movement, their movement was the Poel, the young workers. So uh, um, uh, even the sports teams in Israel today still carry those names, by the way. And those were all over the world. They were, they were all over the world. They were trying to build a global... All of these youth movements were trying to raise up Zionists who would move to the land of Israel. There were just 50,000, then 100,000, then 200,000 Jews there. They, they, it, it, was, it was really dicey. And there were these, they didn't have enough money. And so they, all they had was ideology and chutzpah. And the, and, and the desire to, uh, um, to capitalize on young people's passion. Um, and so, yes, there were youth movements from the different Zionists, the different Zionist streams all over, anywhere where there was a Jewish community. Golda Meyerson was in Milwaukee. Wow. Right? Um, uh, they, and she was part of a youth movement, and she came, and she became, you know, the first foreign minister and prime minister. Abba Eben was in England, um, but his name wasn't Abba Eben. He had a different name, Aubrey what? Aubrey something. Golda Meyerson became Golda Meyer. Abba Eben came from England, um, and uh, David Green became David Ben-Gurion from Russia, and that's the way it was. These, the, this was a young people's, you know, revolutionary movement. Uh, Ivy. Uh, you just mentioned there were religious Jewish youth movements. Yes. Can you say a little more about yes. that? What was their reason for going? So th- th- this is good. I think we've described a bit about labor Zionism, and it really became the DNA, the founding DNA of the state, right? Um, uh, but there were other Zionist streams which had influence and it's important to start talking about them, and that was one of my goals today, and we'll continue this next time, because in the post-socialist era that we live in, these other movements, which grew up in response to the growth of the, of the labor Zionists, um, uh, become ultimately dominant in Israeli politics today. And to understand Israeli politics today, we need to understand the different streams of Zionism. So let's talk about religious Zionism. Doesn't that seem like... Now, it doesn't, because Bob, in 1959, was part of a group of religious Zionists. But think about what I've just described about the labor Zionists. Think about this this heretical poem uh, where the creator calls himself the creator, right? The, The author calls himself... Think about it. What do you think the relationship between the religious establishment in, in Jewish Europe and the labor Zionists was? <laughs> these were apocorsim, these uh, apostates. Like the, it was like, what the hell were they doing? And from a, um, uh, and not to mention the free love and all the other stuff I'm, you know, and, to, and the absolute not only abandonment of Jewish religion, but the rejection, active rejection and denigration of it. These were young socialists. Uh, So there was no common ground between 
um, uh, the religious Jewish religious establishment and the young and the early Zionist movement. N- none at all at the beginning. There was just antipathy. But an interesting thing happened. You know how as a movement gains steam and starts to gain legitimacy, people start to get on board. Isn't that how it works? All of a sudden it's like, hey, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. Maybe this could work. So the most important figure to know about in terms of religious Zionism is a name, man named uh, Rabbi um, uh, Cook, uh, Avram Yisrael Cook. Rabbi Cook came from Europe, uh, and uh, he was both an intellectual and spiritual giant of a man. And he could embrace modern, modernity. He could see what was happening. But he was also a completely, utterly dedicated and devoted religious Jew, right? And a Kabbalist as well, uh, a leading, leading mystical and spiritual teacher. He moves to Palestine in, um, oh gosh, 1910 or something like that? Yeah, but he got stuck in England during the Well, I'm going to explain that. Yeah, but I wanted to see, I wanted to give that picture. Uh, yeah, this, this, I was just, um, let me just check. He came in, well, it's around 1910. He comes to the land of Israel. Why? Because he has this intuition that, which goes against everything that religious Jewish establishment uh, held. Um, the religious Jewish establishment, the, exi- the, 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 the ideology of exile was that we pray for redemption and at some point God will bring us the Messiah who will redeem us and we will be returned to our ancestral land and be reestablished as a free people in our own land. So it is a um, quiescent approach to redemption. And it assumes that we're here in exile for a reason. The reason typically that's explained is we were exiled for our sins. That explains our debased condition. The whole, the, you know, Jews in, had to come up with a, a way to understand why we were being treated so miserably. And that's what people do. And so we're in exile, the Torah says, if we haven't obeyed the commandments, you're going to be kicked out of your land. So we must still be paying the price for our sins with our exile and with the oppression we face. And we have to be steadfast and keep the commandments and one day we'll return. That was the classic position of, of religious Judaism in understanding our, our condition as an exiled people. But inherent in this was always that we would one day return but we're not in control of that day. With the kind of modern historical uh, positivism of the uh, Zionists, they took that Jewish idea and said, well, yeah, and now's the time, and we're going to redeem our people. But for the religious establishment, that was anathema. But Cook was unusual. He and a couple of other Orthodox rabbis 
who are real outliers in the, rabbinic, in the rabbinic world in Europe, said, wait a minute, maybe these secular Zionists, even though they think they've rejected God, are actually God's instrument. And they are preparing the way for the ultimate redemption when we'll be a free people in our own land, even though they don't think they are. <laughs> right? And because of the kind of person he was, he was able to reach out across secular religious lines. Um, and in 1914, he had to leave, along with many other Jews, because the, Ottoman, the Ottomans were not interested in having these Europeans right. in their territory during this war. He wound up in England for a few years. But then, again, who knows how these things happen, as the British took over, they appointed him as the chief rabbi of the British mandate in Palestine. So what is this chief rabbi business? Jews never had a chief rabbi. But in Western Europe, as, nation, as, as Britain and France and other nation states emerged, uh, they wanted, the state wanted to be essentially supervising religion in the country. And so they created positions. Government, the government created positions of chief rabbi in France, in, uh, where are the other chief? In England, of course. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi of England. And so this is, this is an invented position of the modern nation state to uh, deal with its religious minorities. So Israel was going to, so Palestine mandate was appointed a chief rabbi, and it was Rav Cook. And so for the next uh, last uh, 15 or 20 years of his life, he was the chief rabbi. He died in 1935. He was the chief rabbi of um, Palestine, of the British, British Mandate Palestine. Actually, of the British Empire. He was the chief rabbi of the British Empire? Yes, he was actually. I didn't know that. <laughs> really? Yes. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So, Rav Cook was able to, through his leadership, started to develop a following among religious Jews that physically and actively partaking in the recreation and rebuilding of the land of Israel would be the first sprouts of the Messianic era that would lead to, and again, here's, it's another religious and revolutionary ideology, lead ultimately to the end of history, meaning a messianic era, not just when Israel would be a free people in its own land again, but when all evil would be extirpated from, from the world. That's the messianic vision, right? Um, he was... Uh, uh, he, he walked his talk, right? He, he's famous, in the stories about Ralph Cook, he's famous for reaching out to everybody. And he had this capability. And so a movement grew up essentially around his teachings of religious Zionists. 
These were young religious Jews who bought into this and they could participate in this exciting project as well. While the first kibbutzim were founded in 1910, the first religious kibbutzim were founded in 1937. And there are only nine of them in Israel. Religious kibbutzim. It seems like almost an oxymoron, doesn't it? Um, uh, And it just shows you how malleable humans are. Uh, that they could say, we are going to embrace this communalistic, socialist ideal, but we're going to do it as religious Jews. And these kibbutzim still exist also. So the religious Zionist movement was a tiny fraction. There were hundreds of kibbutzim by that point. Or a tiny fraction, tiny, of the Jewish world. Uh, And... um, uh, when the state was founded in 1948. Here, let me read an excerpt from Rav Cook so you get an idea of how he talked. Because he felt that, as a religious Jew, part of his ideology was, how can you fulfill all of the commandments if you don't live in the land of Israel? Read the Torah. So many of the commandments are contingent on being in Israel. Whether it's how we farm and reap, how we, when we go up to Jerusalem, um, and also in the idea of creating a Jewish society where rich and poor, where there are Jewish courts, where rich and poor are treated fairly according to Jewish law, right? Cook saw the incredibly uh, inspiring vision of the Torah to create a just society. And it's all right there. And so in diaspora, We'll never bring the Messiah because we can't fulfill all the commandments. And it's contingent on to bring the Messiah that the children of Israel are fulfilling the commandments. So he turns exilic ideology, religious ideology, on its head and says, we have to go back. Right? And he says, Jewish original creativity, whether in the realm of ideas or in the arena of daily life and action, is impossible except in Eretz Yisrael. A Jew cannot be as devoted and true to his own ideas, sentiments, and imagination in the diaspora as he can be in Eretz Yisrael. Revelations of the holy, of whatever degree, are relatively pure in Eretz Yisrael. Outside it, they are mixed with dross and impurity. In the holy land, man's imagination is lucid and clear, clean and pure capable of receiving the revelations of divine truth and of expressing in life the sublime meaning of the ideal of the sovereignty of holiness. There the mind is prepared to understand the light of prophecy and to be illuminated by the radiance of the Holy Spirit. In Gentile lands, our imagination is dim, clouded with darkness. It cannot serve as the vessel for the outpouring of the divine light. Pretty different from Ben-Gurion, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, But, so from a Jewish religious and spiritual context, Cook develops what's called religious Zionism. Um, It's cool, isn't it? Uh, His movement was called the Mizrahi movement. Uh, uh, Mizrahi meaning go to the east, head to the east. 
Yehuda HaLevi, one of the most famous poets of the Middle Ages, says, my heart is in the east and I am in the uttermost west. He was living in Iberia, in Spain at the time, which was the end of the world at that time. It's interesting because Mizrahi is a surname in, in, of Sephardics. Right. So it was a return to the east. What's, what's Mizrach in, in it, what's the Levant is known as the Orient or the Levant. These are all words for east. So Mizrahi was about turning ourselves to the east and returning to the east. Um, when uh, we'll be getting to this in greater detail, I, I trust. Uh, but uh, when the state of um, and so they formed the the early religious Zionist party formed wings of the existing parties. There were the religious labor party wing. Right? And they were a tiny wing, and then there were other, in other parties. Eventually, when Israel formed its first parliament, there was a national religious party of the labor Zionists. Not the ultra-Orthodox. This comes later. The ultra-Orthodox parties. That's a later development. These were religious Zionists. They were participating fully in the Zionist uh, experiment. Um, let's see. I'll talk about that a little bit more because then it'll be time to end. And next week, we'll talk about who the revisionist Zionists were. That's crucial to understanding Israeli, uh, the, the history of Israel. But, but since we just have a few minutes, I'll talk a little more about the, the religious Zionists. Ben-Gurion, as a revolutionary in his own right, assumed that religion, religious piety and religion were about to be consigned to the dustbin of history. Because it was like, you know, the past. And, um, and so, when the first, in the first Israeli parliament, the religious party, which was just a few people, asked for control of the interior ministry, which would determine marriages and divorces and cemeteries and um, Ben-Gurion said, sure. <laughs> big deal. Yeah, big deal. So you, you can do that. You can do that. Um, uh, <laughs> but this was also at a time and now, again, think of larger historical forces. We're old enough to remember uh, if you grew up in Jewish environments, well, I went to a Jewish day school. It was Orthodox, modern Orthodox. It wasn't Hasidic. It was, it was a modern Orthodox day school. It was 1960. Um, All boys? No. It was modern. <coughs> I'm telling you, it was modern. <laughs> Separate classrooms? No. No? No. And this was the tone of Orthodoxy. Think about Yeshiva University. Yeshiva University was founded as the flagship of the modern Orthodox movement. And its motto is Torah Umada, Torah and science. In the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, it was not seen as a contradiction. We're in a period right now of unbelievable backlash and resurgence of religious fundamentalism. But the religious Zionists were not fundamentalists in that sense. 
And the idea of living in a pluralistic society and participating in this secular government, that was, it's okay. And the reason I'm mentioning my Jewish day school is that um, if, you went, if I went to a Jewish day school today, if I, my, I sent my kids to a Jewish day school today, almost, almost inevitably, with the exception of just a few of these day schools, but certainly one under, one under Orthodox provenance, um, I would have to prove to them that my house was kosher enough, that my kids had been appropriately uh, 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 trained, that if, if someone wanted a play date with my kids, they would have to check out whether our house was kosher enough. This is all now. Back then, I didn't know what synagogue my classmates went to. The girls and the boys all played together. Um, nobody knew who had a kosher home or didn't. Their parents sent to the school. We were in the school. I'm just trying to describe a very different time. It's amazing how things have changed. Ruth? And 60s. Okay, so I was in, my in the 70s. Starting to change. Right, in the 70s, all starting to shift. Wow. I had a similar experience yeah. as you, but in a Jewish Zionist Socialist Day School. Yeah. A Zionist Socialist Day School. Right, yeah. a labor. Movement. A labor movement, Jewish, Jewish school. Day school, a full day program. Mm -hmm. oh, in, in Israel? In Argentina. Argentina, in Argentina. 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 that's right. I lived in Israel when I was a baby, that's all. <laughs> Short alias. But in Argentina, that was a very strong movement. The labor socialist, um, labor Zionist, no religion. Everything was Israel. Right. right. Dressed right. in blue and white and blue for Shabbat. No kippah. Uh, I think we did the blessing of the candles at Shabbat. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. <laughs> that was it. No hands, no this, nothing. We recited the blessing, the blessing for the yain, for the wine. Uh, we had Hebrew in the afternoon. Hebrew yep. And mm -hmm. Yiddish. Yiddish was the main language. Also Yiddish. Yiddish was main language. Hebrew was a language we were learning as a, as a language and to read Torah. And history was taught in English. And in the morning was Spanish curriculum, public school curriculum. Yeah. Amazing. And everybody emigrated. So, uh, and in my generation, I, uh, I read in the 60s, 70s, uh, uh, a lot of people were Zionist and left very young. Right. Almost. Israel, uh, so because in 1924, the United States passed the Immigrant Exclusion Act, yeah. uh, many, many Jews trying to get out uh, so the Canadian, for example, and the Argentinian Jewish communities right. are uh, one generation closer to Yiddish yeah. than ours was, than, than ours was in general. Came in the late 20s. They came in the late twenties. Yeah. So they so so it's like Argentina, Canada. They were a generation, one generation less removed also, from the old country. So Colombia and Ecuador. Colombia, Ecuador, I've known Jews yeah. from Peru, the yeah. Mexican Jewish yeah. community, the Cuban Jewish community, right. anywhere they could get to. The yeah. thing is, Argentina had the largest yes, Jewish Argentina community. Argentina was the largest. It, it was one of the largest in the world in mm -hmm. those days. Yeah. When I grew up, we were half a million Jews. Yes, right. there was a giant was like Jewish community. Yeah. Fourth community in the world. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's not right. anymore. It's not any, a lot of people emigrated. A lot emigrated, a lot went to Israel. Yeah. You meet many Jews from Argentina and Israel. Israel. It wasn't a religious community. We right. were not tied to our synagogues. We were tied yeah. to our cultural 
institutions. Yeah, there were right. no big Jew, uh, Orthodox group. Right. right. And again, I would, I, would, I would describe that to when the massive immigration right. came in. Yeah. Right. Uh, and what the cultural, you know, Zionism, Zionism was big by then, by the yeah. 30s, right? It was like a worldwide phenomenon by the 1930s. So, um, it is, flag this, that it is in 1967, the Six Day War, when um, uh, Israel finds itself almost overnight, having thought we were going to be destroyed, mm. in possession of five times more territory than we'd had the day before. Um, that a kind of messianic, is a good word for it, um, astonishment, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, of, uh, the, uh, overtook the entire country. Yeah. This is when, 67, we'll talk about this in a future class, this is when the religious Zionists start to assert themselves in Israeli society as more than a marginal force. And we'll be talking about that. The other thing I wanted to say, uh, I've gone over a couple of minutes, but um, going back to the labor Zionists and kibbutz culture, uh, because you, you might be thinking when you were talking, the kibbutzniks also looked to their ancient heritage for national inspiration. What, and they were farmers. What did they find? All the Jewish festivals in the Bible are agricultural festivals. In exile, they had all been repurposed as historical and mythical holidays. But Passover is the festival of spring, Shavuot is the festival of the first fruits, Sukkot is the festival of the harvest. The kibbutzniks didn't have, all they had to do was say, we're doing what it says here. This is how we, this is how it was really done. And so if you go to kibbutz for Shavuot, they still have, they get all the tractors out. Uh, even if they're only nominally agricultural still, it's part of kibbutz tradition. The kids dress up with garlands on their heads. They carry baskets of first fruits and they sing songs. Right? So Judaism, all, the, all, the, all the, um, uh, the raw material of Judaism in this ancient heritage was all already there for them to read and say, we're back. And now we're going to reclaim these. And again, the purpose of, uh, uh, of when, you're, when, you're, when you are trying to build a new society, you're always looking for the ancient antecedents that prove that this is how it was always supposed to be. Everybody does that, right? This is really the way it was supposed to be. Now we can finally do it this way. Okay, I hope this is fun and interesting wow. for everybody. We'll continue next week. Wonderful.